Hello and welcome to another episode of California Crime Stories. This podcast is brought to you by a mom and daughter podcasting duo. I'm the daughter. And I'm the mom. And here we bring you true tales of murder and mystery from the Golden State. Some are old, some are new, some made national news, and some were small town stories. But all of them have piqued our interest over the years, and we know that they'll pique yours too. Maybe you joined us last episode for our deep dive into the life and death of author and journalist Susan Berman. We'll be sticking around in Los Angeles for this episode. In fact, we'll be staying on the same street. You'll remember from our last episode that in 2000, Susan Berman was murdered in her home at 1527 Benedict Canyon Drive in Beverly Hills. Well, the subject of this week's episode died mysteriously in his own home at 1579 Benedict Canyon Drive, some 40 years earlier. Spooky, right? On June 16, 1959, the world awoke to the news that Superman had died. The actor George Reeves, best known for playing the Man of Steel on television in the 1950s, had died early that morning in his Beverly Hills home. Reeves had been killed by a gunshot wound to the head in his upstairs bedroom, while his fiancée and three friends sat downstairs in the living room. After a week-long investigation, the police closed the case and ruled Reeves's death a suicide. Despite being the face of Superman, Reeves had never found the success he sought in Hollywood as a serious film actor, and may have been depressed at the time of his death. But certain strange details of the crime scene and a lack of forensic evidence have kept Reeves' loved ones and fans wondering for decades. Could Superman have been murdered? Could the culprit have been Reeves' socialite fiancé? Or his distraught former partner of 10 years? Or the husband of his former partner, a Hollywood studio executive and fixer with mob connections? The truth seems to have died with them. You may have seen George Reeves portrayed by Ben Affleck in the 2006 film Hollywoodland, which chronicles Reeves' struggles to step out of the shadow of Superman and presents various possible scenarios for his death. In researching the life and death of George Reeves, we drew from Sam Kashner and Nancy Schoenberger's book, Hollywood Kryptonite, from E.J. Fleming's book called The Fixers, from long-form pieces in the New York Times, The Guardian, and The Independent, from articles and obituaries published in the days after George Reeves's death, and from a few other online sources. George Reeves was born George Kiefer Brewer on January 5, 1914, in Woolstock, Iowa. His parents were Don and Helen Brewer. They divorced within a few months of little George's birth, and George and his mother moved to Pasadena, California. Helen would remarry in Pasadena, and George would grow up there. He studied music and acting at Pasadena Junior College, where he also sang in the a cappella choir, boxed, and performed in school plays. In 1935, when he was 21 years old, George started performing at the Pasadena Community Playhouse. He performed in dozens of productions there over the next four years. George Reeve wasn't the only Hollywood actor to get a start at the Pasadena Community Playhouse. In fact, in the first few decades of Hollywood, so from the 1920s-ish to the 1940s, the Pasadena Playhouse operated as a sort of star factory. The major Hollywood film studios would send scouts to cover the Playhouse's productions and scope out the up-and-coming talent, who would then perhaps be signed to studio contracts. And it wasn't only an incubator for actors. Plenty of playwrights, directors, and other figures who would go on to become titans of the Hollywood film and television industry also got their start at the Pasadena Community Playhouse. So it was at the Pasadena Community Playhouse that scouting agents for Hollywood producer David O. Selznick first saw George Reeves. They liked what they saw, and in 1939, Reeves made his film debut in a little old David O. Selznick picture that no one's ever heard of called Gone with the Wind. 
Reeves played Stuart Tarleton, one of many love interests for the film's heroine, Scarlett O'Hara. Gone with the Wind was obviously a sensation, so, you know, not a bad film to make your debut in, if you're Reeves. And Reeves was quite handsome in it. If guys with bright orange hair are your thing, Reeves' hair was dyed orange for the role. Following his breakout role in Gone with the Wind, George Reeves was signed by Warner Brothers Studios, who convinced him to adopt George Reeves as his professional name. Until then, he had gone by his stepfather's surname, Bessalow. Reeves appeared in a number of not-so-memorable films in the early 40s, but he did get some attention for the 1943 film So Proudly We Hail. In it, Reeves played a wounded soldier who falls in love with an army nurse while the two are stationed in the Philippines during World War II. The film gave Reeves his first starting role and was a box office hit. The director of that film, Mark Sandrich, told Reeves that he had great plans for him once the war was over. Sandrich, who directed the classic film Holiday Inn and helped make Hollywood stars of Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, probably knew what he was talking about. So Reeves waited out the war. In fact, he enlisted in the Army and joined the Special Theatrical Unit of the Army Air Corps. As part of that unit, he appeared in several Army training films, including one film that warned soldiers against the dangers of venereal disease. It's a tough job, but someone has to do it. So George Reeves' star was seemingly on the rise in the early 1940s, and he was sort of being groomed or set up for stardom after World War II. But Mark Sandrich, that director of So Proudly We Hail, who had promised success for Reeves after the war, died of a sudden heart attack in 1945. And with him died one of Reeves' big chances at success. Through the rest of the 1940s, Reeves appeared in some more low-budget films, but his opportunities were limited. The big Hollywood studios were cutting back due to a recession, and Reeves was only getting walk-on parts. It was then that he turned his sights to television. Now, at that time, television wasn't the medium that it is today. It was a relatively new medium, and it had a pretty bad reputation among film actors like Reeves. According to Alan Coulter, the director of Hollywoodland, television was then considered to be, quote, the graveyard of failed movie careers. So when Reeves was offered the role of Superman in a 1951 television pilot called Superman and the Mole Men, he reluctantly accepted it. Reeves was a good fit for the role. He was six foot two, handsome, but in an everyman sort of way. And he was an athletic judo enthusiast and a former college wrestler. But he didn't think Superman would be a hit, and he may have thought the role was sort of beneath him. Before the start of filming in 1951, Reeves had a drink in his trailer on set with the actress who would star opposite him as Lois Lane. As he raised his glass, he said, Here's to the bottom of the barrel, babe. Though Reeves may not have had high expectations for Superman, the television series became an enormous hit when it premiered in the fall of 1952. Reeves would go on to record five seasons and 104 episodes of The Adventures of Superman. 35 million viewers tuned in each year in the U.S., but Reeves' Superman also made fans abroad. The Emperor of Japan even sent Reeves a letter saying how much he enjoyed the show. And whenever Reeves made public appearances for Kellogg's, who sponsored The Adventures of Superman, tens of thousands of children came to see their hero in person. The show became such a sensation that, for better or for worse, Reeves really became Superman in the eyes of the American public. So much so that children would come up to Reeves at those public appearances and prick him with pins or punch him in the stomach because, in their eyes, he was the Man of Steel. And in one instance, which is portrayed in the film Hollywoodland, a young boy pointed a loaded thirty-eight at George Reeves, and Reeves had to convince the boy not to fire because the bullet wouldn't, in fact, bounce off of him. Reeves's performance as Superman made him a star on television, but certainly had negative repercussions for the film career he had long tried to build. In 
The filming schedule for The Adventures of Superman was such that Reeves was only free to work on other projects for around a month at a time. So he wasn't able to commit to many other serious roles and further develop his career. He appeared in a lot of one-off television episodes during those years because that's really all he had time to do. And as far as finances, George had to make a few months of salary last for the entire year. During those months that he wasn't actively filming Superman, he wasn't being paid. He also earned very little money in residuals for his work in Superman. That means that when the episodes of the series were rerun on television, George and the other cast members didn't really receive any money for that. So George, at that time, was really relying on support from his partner and from his mother, Helen, who had received a small inheritance from her father, to make ends meet. But George did get a promising part in the film From Here to Eternity, which he filmed before the premiere of The Adventures of Superman. But when a preview audience finally saw From Here to Eternity after the Superman series had premiered, they saw George Reeves on the screen and yelled, There's Superman! Producers likely feared that Reeves' newfound Superman fame would distract from the other actors who appeared in the film, including Burt Lancaster, Montgomery Clift, and Frank Sinatra. Whatever they're thinking, they almost entirely scrapped Reeves' part in the film. From Here to Eternity went on to win eight Oscars, but Reeves's appearance in the film was, in the end, brief and uncredited. The sixth season of Superman wrapped in 1957. Superman would be George Reeves's last role. He didn't appear in any more films or television shows before his death in 1959. But during the last two years of his life, Reeves kept busy in a number of different ways. He apparently entertained the idea of playing Dick Tracy on television, but turned down the proposal because he didn't want to do another television show. And by this time, Reeves was actually pursuing his interest in directing. He had directed three episodes of that sixth season of The Adventures of Superman and had enjoyed it and done well. In 1958, Reeves was looking for science fiction films to direct and he apparently found one, and found a studio that was willing to put up the money. Reeves excitedly told his friends about this upcoming second act to his career, and they were happy for him. Meanwhile, Reeves still had public engagements and publicity tours to do for The Adventures of Superman that year, since the sixth season hadn't finished airing yet. And he even made a brief foray into digging ditches as a way to make a little spending money and stay in shape. He offered to dig ditches at $100 a trench for friends and neighbors in Benedict Canyon who were putting in septic tanks at their homes. In 1959, George agreed to participate in a series of exhibition boxing matches against Archie Moore, the light heavyweight champion. Reeves had boxed in college, and these exhibition matches were a chance to do something he enjoyed while getting a little publicity. And in May of 1959, the makers of The Adventures of Superman decided to bring back George Reeves and the rest of the cast to film 26 new episodes. These episodes were supposedly a reworking of episodes from the first season, but would be filmed in color rather than black and white, as they had been filmed previously. George was done with Superman, but he needed the money, and he was promised that he could direct several of the new episodes, so he signed on to the seventh season of Superman. However, that seventh season would never be filmed. More than 60 years removed from the death of George Reeves, it's impossible for us to get a clear picture of the state of Reeves's career at the time of his death, and of the sort of future that Reeves might have had in Hollywood after Superman. What we know for sure is that Reeves appeared in several successful and well-regarded films throughout his career, and he worked with some real icons. His debut in Gone with the Wind, as we know, he played opposite Claudette Colbert in So Proudly We Hail, he appeared in a James Cagney film, and he was in two Fritz Lang pictures. But we also know that Reeves's prospects as a film star suffered because of his association with Superman. 
As we remember, he had that substantial role in From Here to Eternity that was almost entirely scrubbed from the film after viewers recognized him as Superman. But so much of what is reported about Reeves's future in Hollywood post-Superman and his own state of mind regarding his career is hazy and contradictory. For every source that says Reeves was at a professional dead end and that his career was in ruins, another source argues that he had a very successful career in television directing ahead of him. And for every source that says Reeves's exhibition boxing matches were an embarrassing and pathetic publicity stunt, another source argues that Reeves trained and prepared enthusiastically for these fights. For every source that says Reeves was depressed at the time of his death, that he didn't see a way out, another source argues that Reeves still loved life and was planning for the future. But in spite of all of Reeves' professional ups and downs, and wherever he was at mentally because of the Superman series, both his friends and his co-workers agree that he was really a good person and a good colleague. He supported philanthropic causes, particularly for children who suffered from myasthenia gravis. Reeves also stood up for friends and fellow actors who were under investigation by the House Un-American Activities Committee. On one occasion, he refused to participate in a Superman event whose audience would be segregated, instead convincing the other cast members to sign autographs for all of the children present, white or black. He was apparently very kind to all of the children who he came across in his role as Superman, and was very upset and concerned whenever he heard about children who had accidents because they thought that they could fly like Superman. So now that we've outlined the ups and downs of George Reeves's professional life and did our best to separate fact from conjecture, it's time to talk about the ups and downs of Reeves's personal life. We mentioned earlier that Reeves got his start in Hollywood in the late 30s and early 40s. Well, in 1940, he married a fellow actor from the Pasadena Community Playhouse named Eleonora Needles. The two would later divorce in 1949 after Needles left George Reeves for another man. The divorce didn't become final until 1950. And it's right around that time in 1950 that George Reeves met Tony Mannix, the woman who would become his longtime partner. Tony Mannix was a former Ziegfeld girl with high standing in Hollywood because she was the lover of Eddie Mannix, an MGM studio executive and fixer. If you've ever seen the show's Scandal or Ray Donovan, you know what a fixer is. As a lead fixer for MGM, Eddie Mannix was responsible for covering up all sorts of scandals involving MGM stars. But Eddie approved of Tony's relationship with George Reeves. Meanwhile, Eddie himself had his own longtime mistress. She and Eddie would often go on double dates and even travel with George and Tony. Although Tony and Eddie got to sit in first class, while Eddie's mistress and George sat back in tourist class. Although many sources report that Tony and Eddie Mannix were married in 1951, the authors of Hollywood Kryptonite state that Tony and Eddie's marriage was a common law one. But whether or not Tony and Eddie were formerly married, the two maintained their own extramarital relationships. During Tony and George's 10 years together, Tony financed George's lifestyle in large part. She paid for his car, clothes, furniture, and vacations, and she bought and decorated the house in Benedict Canyon where Reeves would live until his death. Eddie Mannix wasn't in the best of health in those years. He had several heart attacks and ended up in a wheelchair, and it was expected that Tony would marry George once Eddie was no longer in the picture. But in October of 1958, while on a Superman publicity tour in New York without Tony, George met a young woman named Leonora Lemon. Leonora was a socialite, twice married and twice divorced, who had spent some time in London and done a little singing in nightclubs. She was apparently vivacious, witty, original, intelligent, and artistic. She painted and sang, and she was interested in music and literature, as was George. By the end of the publicity junket in New York, George had spent a couple of weeks with Leonore, 
and the two were smitten. Leonor was nine years younger than George, and she made him feel younger, too. So he went home to Hollywood and told Tony that he had met someone in New York, and that their nearly ten years long love affair was finally over. He would be leaving her for Leonor Lemon. Tony was reportedly inconsolable after George left. For weeks she didn't leave the house and spent her days crying and calling George up to twenty or thirty times a day. And Tony was furious at George, too. Leonor made him feel young again. Meanwhile, Tony, who was seven years older than George, had invested ten years of her life in their relationship, and she certainly wasn't getting any younger. But it was, perhaps, the ultimate indignity to Tony that Leonor was living with George in the house that Tony had bought and decorated for her and George's life together. Tony went so far as to park her car across the street from the house and watch George and Leonor inside. Tony reportedly harassed George and Leonore to such an extent that George filed for a restraining order against Tony. There's a very dark and disturbing story about Tony's treatment of George after their split, reported in Hollywood Kryptonite and referenced in at least one or two other sources. Because it's so dark and disturbing, it's almost impossible to believe, and yet friends of Tony attest to it happening. So we'll tell the story. George had a beloved dog, a one-eyed schnauzer named Sam. George felt bad leaving Sam at home when he went out to run errands, so he would take the dog in the car with him wherever he went. One day in January 1959, George left Sam sitting on the passenger seat of his Jaguar while he stepped into a repair shop in Hollywood. When he returned to his car, Sam was gone. George was distraught. He reported Sam's disappearance to the police and spent the rest of the day driving around Hollywood looking for Sam. He was worried that with only one eye, the dog could accidentally wander into traffic and be hit by a car. Neither the police nor George were able to locate Sam. But a friend of Tony Mannix's, who made a call to Tony's house around the time that George's dog went missing, noticed something strange. She heard a dog barking in the background, but she knew that the Mannixes didn't have a dog. Tony said that it was the neighbor's dog, but Tony's friend was sure that it had to be Sam. Perhaps Tony had kidnapped George's dog as a way of forcing him to open a line of communication with her, or as some sort of petty revenge against him and Leonor. Regardless, Tony reportedly had Sam the dog put to sleep. Now, this is a story which, if it's true, is a pretty disturbing reflection of Tony Mannix's behavior after her split with George Reeves and the lengths to which she was willing to go to get back at him. George and Leonor were together for around eight months before Reeves's death in June 1959. During that time, George began to spend less and less time with his old friends and Superman colleagues. The family-style, intimate weekend get-togethers that he and Tony had once hosted for friends were replaced by Leonore's wild house parties. People were constantly dropping by the house in Benedict Canyon to have a drink with George or Leonore. And at night, if someone saw the front porch light of the home on, they knew that they were free to drop in for cocktail hour. George and Leonore made some plans for the days following George's death. He died, as we know, on the morning of Tuesday, June 16th. On the following day, Wednesday the 17th, Reeves was apparently scheduled to fight in an exhibition boxing match with boxer Archie Moore in San Diego. However, the rest of that boxing tour was apparently canceled because of poor ticket sales. And George found out about that on Monday the 15th. Reeves and Leonora were apparently going to be married on Friday the 19th, and spend their honeymoon in Spain. And Reeves was apparently set to travel to Australia at some point on a Superman promotional tour. He told reporters that Leonor was coming with him, and that he was excited about their trip. He thought he'd, quote, have a ball down under. On the night of June 15th, 1959, George and Leonor went out for dinner and drinks. The two had a house guest that night, a man named Robert Condon. 
Condon was a writer who was writing a story about Reeves's boxing adversary, Archie Moore, and planned to write a story about Reeves as well. But Condon didn't join George and Leonore for dinner. He stayed behind at Reeves's home in Benedict Canyon. George and Leonore returned home around 11 p.m. At around midnight, George went upstairs to bed alone. He came back down a little while later, though, because there was a bit of a crowd amassing at his house. Leonore was entertaining three guests. Robert Condon, the house guest we just mentioned, a neighbor named Carol Van Ronkel, who also happened to be Robert Condon's lover, and another neighbor named William Bliss, who the others reportedly didn't know that well or had perhaps never even met. George Reeves was apparently in a bad mood when he came downstairs. Honestly, who wouldn't be if you're trying to sleep and your fiancé is having a cocktail party? Anyways, he did reportedly say that he was, quote, in no mood for a party. So after a while, he went back upstairs to bed after saying goodnight to the guests downstairs and apologizing to them for his bad mood. Now, according to the police report and the story that Leonor Lemon and the three guests told police... Here's what happened next. When Reeves went back upstairs, Lemon said jokingly to her guests, he's going to shoot himself. From downstairs, they could hear a drawer up. From downstairs, they then heard a drawer open in the upstairs bedroom. Lemon then said, he's getting the gun out now and he's going to shoot himself. A shot did ring out. It was William Bliss who ran upstairs and found Reeves dead on the bed. After some time, as little as 45 minutes, and as much as several hours after finding Reeves's body, Bliss called the police. We don't have a firm window as to how much time the guests waited before calling the police, but if you think that even 45 minutes is way too much time to wait before calling the police to report a murder, we agree with you. When officers arrived at 1579 Benedict Canyon Drive in the early morning hours of June 16th, they first found Leonore Lemon, Robert Condon, Carol Van Ronkel, and William Bliss sitting downstairs. They were all apparently quite drunk. When they entered the upstairs bedroom, police found George Reeves lying naked on the bed in a pool of his own blood. He had been killed by a single bullet to the right temple. There was a thirty caliber Luger laying between his feet, which were still on the floor, as if he'd been sitting on the edge of the bed when the gun was fired. The shell casing from the Luger was found underneath his body, and the bullet had lodged in the ceiling of the bedroom. George Reeves was 45 years old. Police spent a week conducting interviews and investigating the circumstances of Reeves' death. Throughout the investigation, details that challenged the initial theory of suicide were ignored, and opportunities to collect further evidence were missed. For a start, the coroner didn't conduct Reeves's autopsy until his body had already been washed and embalmed and his bullet wound sewn shut. And when the coroner did conduct his autopsy, he failed to test George's hands or his head for gunpowder residue, which would have indicated that the gunshot was self-inflicted. And then the other odd details that could have pointed to something other than suicide, well, there were bruising on Reeves's forehead and chest, and as we mentioned earlier, he was found naked. The bullet had entered Reeves's temple and lodged in the ceiling, and yet the shell casing had somehow ended up underneath his back. The gun had apparently been oiled too recently to retain any fingerprints. The police didn't check how many rounds had been fired from the gun that night, and the coroner didn't investigate how far the bullet had traveled before entering Reeves's skull, and whether that distance and trajectory were consistent with a self-inflicted gunshot wound. During that week-long police investigation, the evidence seal on George Reeves's home was broken. Leonore Lemon had apparently entered the home and taken $4,000 worth of traveler's checks, with which she fled to New York. Leonore said that Reeves had purchased those checks for their wedding and honeymoon. After a week, 
the police and coroner agreed to rule George Reeves's death as suicide. The case was closed. None of those who had spent George Reeves's last night with him would even attend his funeral, including Leonore Lemon, and neither did Tony Mannix. Still, many of Reeves's friends continued to suspect murder. George's mother, Helen, likewise refused to believe that her son had died by suicide. She was so convinced that he had met a different, darker end that she arranged for his body to be held in a temporary burial vault for eight months, while a lawyer hired by Helen looked for further evidence to support her theory. And there were plenty of compelling suspects and motives that would lead us to consider murder. So we're going to lay out some of those potential murder suspects and scenarios now. First, could George Reeves' death have been a revenge hit arranged by Eddie Mannix, the husband of Tony Mannix? From an outsider's perspective, the relationship between Tony and Eddie Mannix, happily married yet each with their own longtime partner, is a sort of strange love square. But Eddie would definitely have had reason to be angry at George, maybe even angry enough to have him killed. On one hand, Eddie genuinely cared for Tony, and it would surely have bothered him to see Tony so devastated when George left her for Leonore. On the other hand, by leaving Tony, George had upset the delicate balance that Eddie and Tony had worked to cultivate in their personal lives. And this likely wouldn't have been the first hit Eddie had arranged or the first crime he helped cover up. As a fixer for MGM, he had made a number of affairs, drunk driving busts, drug arrests, union beefs, domestic abuse cases, and other crimes disappear. And when it comes to arranging a hit and making it look like a suicide, Eddie Mannix knew the right people. He had ties to organized crime and to the L.A. chief of police. It's even been theorized that Mannix had his first wife killed in 1937. She had filed for divorce from Eddie, asking for $4,000 a month in alimony and half of their community property, before she unfortunately died in Palm Springs. The car she was in reportedly was run off the road, killing her and seriously injuring the driver. If Eddie Mannix didn't have George Reeves killed, could Tony Mannix have had George killed, or perhaps killed him herself in a jealous rage? Tony was clearly very upset after George left her for Leonore, and her behavior clearly disturbed the couple since George filed for a restraining order against her. In their book, Hollywood Kryptonite, Sam Kashner and Nancy Schoenberger theorized that it was Tony who hired a gunman to kill George, and that that gunman entered the home while William Bliss, the guest who neither Leonore nor George knew, distracted Leonore and the other potential witnesses downstairs with his arrival. Perhaps William Bliss, who reportedly had connections to the Beverly Hills Police Department, was part of the plot. Or perhaps he was just unwittingly providing a distraction. The gunman could have then slipped into George's upstairs bedroom and shot him. But this is only one theory posed in one book. And let's say neither Eddie Mannix nor Tony Mannix were involved with George's death. Could Reeves' fiancée, Leonore Lemon, have killed him, either intentionally or unintentionally? Lemon was known to have a violent nature and regular temper tantrums, and both she and Reeves drank profusely. These days, the level of drinking that George Reeves engaged in, which included spiking his orange juice at 7 o'clock in the morning, Yum. <laughs> drinking a shaker of martinis with Tony during his lunch hour on the Superman set, here comes a nap for me, um, and drinking all evening at dinners and social engagements would now be considered alcoholism. But in those days, it wasn't, and no one in George's inner circle ever referred to George's drinking as such. Many of those friends even claimed that they could never tell when George had had too much to drink because he held his liquor so well. But could a violent, drunken altercation between George and Leonore have intentionally or unintentionally ended in Reeves being shot? When police examined George Reeves's upstairs bedroom, the scene of his death, they found two bullet holes in the floor underneath a carpet which they could not account for. 
Leonor Lemon claimed that she and Reeves had had an argument a few days before his death and that she had fired two bullets into the floor. In addition to those two strange bullet holes, we have the strange predictions slash proclamations that Lemon claimed she made to her guests immediately before Reeves was shot. Remember when Reeves said goodnight to his guests and toddled back upstairs to bed, Lemon reportedly said, he's going to shoot himself, and then moments later, he's getting the gun out now and he's going to shoot himself. Now when police asked her about these statements, Lemon claimed she, she was only kidding. But 30 years after Reeves's death, Lemon apparently said to a reporter that those statements she had made about Reeves supposedly shooting himself were invented after the fact. She had never actually said those things. Now is a good time to talk about George Reeves's will. In keeping with California law, Reeves's will was probated, meaning that a court examined the will and oversaw the distribution of Reeves's assets as outlined in that will. In his will, Reeves left his money, his home, and his car to Tony Mannix. He also left a part of his estate to his mother, Helen. To Leonor Lemon, he left nothing. Lemon claimed that there must be another will which named her as a beneficiary. But, unfortunately for her, no other will was ever found. Wah, wah. <laughs> there are still several other possible scenarios in which Reeve could have died by his own hand. Could Reeves's death have been a tragic accident, the result of a dangerous combination of painkillers and alcohol that impaired his judgment? So here we should mention that two months before his death, George Reeves was in a serious car crash that left him hospitalized for several days with a concussion and a large cut on his forehead. At the time of his death, he was reportedly still taking painkillers to treat the severe post-concussion headaches stemming from that crash. Could the combination of alcohol, painkillers, and post-concussion symptoms have impaired Reeves's judgment to the point that while playing with or cleaning his gun, he shot himself by accident? Some early reports on George's death speculated that he might have shot himself accidentally while playing Russian roulette. But we can pretty much completely debunk this theory, because it's actually impossible to play Russian roulette with a Luger pistol, just based on how the gun is designed. The Luger doesn't have the spinning cylinder that revolvers have, and that we think of when we think of Russian roulette. And then there's Occam's razor, the most straightforward, simple, logical explanation for George Reeves' death, that he died by suicide. Was Reeves at a professional dead end at the time of his death? Was he depressed? Was he unable to see a way forward? We can't know, and we'll never know. But for me, the most compelling theory is that Leonor Lemon killed George Reeves, either intentionally or unintentionally. I think that the only people who could have been responsible for Reeves' death and who know the truth about what happened that night were in that house. No one else could conceivably have entered the house without being spotted by those four witnesses sitting in the living room. And there are so many details about the crime scene that make me seriously doubt that Reeves' death was a suicide, and that make me doubt that Leonor told the truth about anything that happened that night. Namely, the fact that the shell from the bullet was found underneath Reeves' chest. There's the unexplained bruises on his body, the unexplained bullet holes in the floor, the lack of prints on the gun, the lack of known gunpowder residue on Reeves' hands and face, since that was never tested for. Then there's the bullet trajectory from temple to ceiling that seems, to me, to be inconsistent with suicide, and the fact that Reeves was found naked. I think that Leonor killed George, on purpose or by accident, and that Leonor and her guests got their story straight before calling the police. When interviewed by police that night, Leonor and her guests all said that Reeves was depressed. Some of those guests barely knew him or had never met him, and yet they were all on the same page. Curious. And why would Leonor claim that she made those predictions about George's suicide immediately before it happened? 
only to later admit that she had never made those statements, which to me sound like something that no human being would ever say. That sounds like the work of several people who were trying to make it seem like Reeves was in a precarious mental state on the night he died, and therefore capable of committing suicide. But that's my hot take, so you can take my hot take or leave my hot take. I totally take your hot take. Okay, so I'm with you in believing that there's this accumulation of details, fishy details, that refute a suicide theory. I think it also refutes the theory of somebody, you know, Tony or... Um, Eddie taking a hit out on George in retaliation for dumping Tony. Um, these details point me towards Leonor pulling the trigger on the Luger, either accidentally, as you mentioned, in a struggle with George, or you know the two of them being drunk and horsing around, or I could totally picture her, you know, being drunk as a skunk, waving the gun around, you know, with these random shots in the floor a few days before, apparently. Anyways, I could totally see her shooting George in that respect. I could also see it purposely. She might be sensing that the relationship is going off the rails. He's losing interest. We've read in other sources where... She's really, really pushing for marriage sooner rather than later. And he's, I think, thinking about putting the brakes on things at least. Um, You know, maybe he's overtly pushing away from the wedding idea, whatever. Um, But I think that the lack of rigor in the police investigation basically helped her get away with it. So we have the evidence from the crime scene, which would indicate that George didn't die by suicide. And then we have Leonore's suspicious behavior and statements before and after George's death, which would indicate that she was involved in either the murder or the cover-up. But still, how can we be sure that Eddie Mannix or Tony Mannix weren't involved? Well, although Eddie was a fixer, a hired hit wouldn't really have been on brand for him. He paid plenty of people off to make crimes disappear and protect his stars at MGM, But he wasn't really going around having people bumped off. That wasn't really his way of doing things. And, of course, the rumor about his ex-wife being run off the road is incriminating, but ultimately it's a rumor. We don't really have any evidence that Eddie was involved in her death. And by the time George died, Eddie was very infirm. He wasn't working anymore. He required a lot of care. He was wheelchair-bound. So perhaps he wasn't in a position to organize this hit. And Tony, meanwhile, was still supporting George economically even after he left her for Leonore. He was living in a house that she paid for, and she basically continued to pay his restaurant and liquor bills and entertainment. Um, Tony was definitely vindictive, uh, if you think about the the dog incident. Um, But you would think that if she wanted George dead, she would have at least cut him off financially first. And if she really wanted him dead, if she was that mad to kill him, why wait eight months to do it? Um, Several of Tony's friends said that Tony hoped and thought that George would eventually come to his senses, change his mind about Leonore, and come back to her. But at any rate, I think we've used the words reportedly, supposedly, and apparently more times in this podcast than in any other podcast we will ever make. And that's because it is so hard to get a clear picture of where George Reeves was at, emotionally, mentally, and professionally, at the end of his life. As we said before, you can read something in one article and read the opposite in the next article. And it's so frustratingly difficult to get at the truth, much harder than it was in the cases we've covered previously on this podcast. And perhaps that's a product of Reeves's connection to Hollywood. This is an image business where optics and appearances are paramount. So perhaps in an attempt to preserve the image of George Reeves, or of Superman, or of Eddie and Tony Mannix, who knows who, the truth has been obscured, most likely forever. 
Well, one thing we can say about George Reeves and Hollywood is that Reeves is in some ways the victim of a changing Hollywood system. Reeves entered into Hollywood at a very unstable time of change in the industry. The studio system was ending, and with it, the golden age of film. The industry was crippled by a world war and a recession. And then television emerged as a strange yet increasingly popular new medium. People just weren't going to the movies like they used to. And acting was changing, too. The studio leading men like George Reeves were being eclipsed by a new generation of method actors like James Dean and Marlon Brando. Reeves was sort of caught between two eras of Hollywood and was, at least in his own mind and to his own expectations, unable to transition successfully from one to the other. He was seemingly in the right place at the wrong time, and he would never live up to his own expectations. So now that we've finished our dive into the mysterious death of George Reeves, We'd like to close with a segment we're calling CCS Recommends, where we'll each be sharing with you a movie, book, podcast, recipe, artist, or other cool thing that we are enjoying at the moment. So my recommendation is a cookbook. Um, I think many of us think of starting the new year, or any time at all really, with a resolve to eat healthier. So whether you're vegetarian, gluten-free, dairy-free, paleo, grain-free, feeding children who are choosy eaters, I think about your brother, (laughs) Um, whatever's your bag, or whether you eat anything you want, but right now you're in a cooking rut, I am loving a cookbook called The Defined Dish. Um, The photography is stunning. The recipes themselves are easy to follow, and they don't require tons of prep. And the dishes are fabulous. Um, It's a long time since I've used a cookbook where every recipe I've tried is a keeper, like one of those recipes you're going to put in your regular rotation. Um, The dishes are flavorful, and if you're following any one of these, you know, diet regimens that I've just mentioned you will not feel like you are compromising or missing out. So yeah, The Defined Dish by Alex Snodgrass. Yeah, I definitely second that recommendation. Um, As far as different um, diets, they give you some nice substitutions, or, you know, if you don't want to make a substitution, the recipe is really, like, complete on its own um, without cheese or without meat. Um, And I started eating vegetarian recently and we've still been, um, the recipes have been like filling and substantial Mm -hmm. despite not having any meat. And they always come out really well seasoned, which you can't say about all recipes. Like it gets (laughs) to the plate and you're like, hey, this is good. I don't need to throw a bunch of salt. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So that's a good one. That a fine dish. And my recommendation for this episode is another true crime podcast which you should absolutely check out if you're a fan of this genre. It's called Your Own Backyard, and it's researched and hosted by Chris Lambert. It tells the story of Kristen Smart, who was a freshman at Cal Poly in May of 1996 when she disappeared on the way back to her dorm from a house party. The podcast follows Kristen's life from her childhood and young adulthood to her first year in college, to the night that she disappeared in 1996. It then follows the investigation into her disappearance, which to this day, almost 25 years later, is still active and ongoing. Along the way, we learn quite a lot about the last person to see Kristen Smart, a young man named Paul Flores, who walked with her from the house party towards her dorm, and who is still the only person of interest in Kristen's disappearance. The podcast is incredibly well-researched and well-produced, and I think made with the utmost respect for Kristen's memory and for her parents, Stan and Denise Smart, who have never stopped looking for their daughter. And although Paul Flores has long since been tried and found guilty in the court of public opinion for Kristen Smart's disappearance, um, the podcast reminds us that he has never been charged with any crime and is still innocent until proven otherwise. I think that 
The podcast presents the facts and the evidence against Paul Flores objectively and leaves the viewers to make their own judgments. Um, A six-episode season was released in late 2019, but Chris Lambert has since released a couple of update episodes, and I think that we can expect more since there has been there have been new developments in the investigation as recently, I think, as April 2020. Um, again, the podcast is called Your Own Backyard, and it's available on all the usual podcast platforms and on the website, which is yourownbackyardpodcast.com. And I suggest going to the website because there's some really nice photos of Kristen and her family and other photos related to the investigation, which were nice for me to see because I kind of need to have a picture of the place mm-hmm. in my mind when I'm listening to it. Um, so I highly suggest you check out that podcast. It's called Your Own Backyard. And we suggest it because we actually thought about covering this case, um, Kristen Smart's disappearance on the podcast. But we realized pretty quickly that any episode that we could do would just be a poor summary of the really great work, I think, that Chris Lambert has done with Your Own Backyard. So um, we don't even want to try to compete with him. It's I mean it's podcast. it's a standalone source on its own. It's so well done. Um, and he's he's very good in it. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. absolutely. Go, and I mean go the police listen. recommend it. Kristen Smart's parents recommend it. It's become the definitive source, and it's a rare true crime podcast that has actually, I think, helped bring the investigation mm-hmm. closer to um, a resolution and everybody agrees with that so uh, kudos to him and check out your own backyard so thanks for tuning in to another episode of california crime stories if you have any questions or feedback for us or if you want to suggest a case that you think we should cover in a future episode you can send us an email at feedback at ccspod.com that's feedback at ccspod.com Our podcast is now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, on our website, ccspod.com, and on lots of other platforms. And you can follow us on Twitter now, at TheCCSPod, where we'll be posting some photos to go along with the episode and letting you know about upcoming episodes. California Crime Stories is researched, written, and produced by us, your hosts, with artwork also provided by us. Our theme is Arcadia by Cody Martin. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.